Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, we've been uh, working our way through uh, verses 4 through to 7. And uh, we got partway through that last week. We'll finish it up today, Lord willing. So let's read 4 through 7 and then we'll pray together. Paul writes, starting in verse 4, and says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith. For even though I am absent... Oh, sorry, I just read that part, huh? Verse (laughs) 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity this morning to hear from you. And I pray that we would do just that, that right now you would tune our hearts, our ears, and our spirit to hear directly from you. Lord, we want to hear from you corporately as a body. We want to hear from you individually as your children. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd come and you'd speak through the Holy Word. And that today you would just cause us to be growing in grace, growing in Christ Jesus, growing in this love relationship. We don't want to be stagnant. We don't want to be backsliding. We don't want to be caught up in a bunch of stuff. We want to be on fire, moving ahead, growing in you, Jesus. We want to profess together right now in prayer that, Lord, you are the most important thing in our lives. So many things would seek to compete with you. And right now, best as we know how, we we put all those things aside. We exalt you upon the throne of our hearts. We ask that you would be supreme and preeminent now. In our thoughts, in our spirits, in our ears, in our minds. Bless and guide this Bible study for your glory, Lord. The furtherance of your kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been talking about how to be solid in your faith. We started last week, and today will be part two. And and we prefaced last week's message by acknowledging that we've all heard that phraseology, oh, he's solid in his faith, or oh man, she's, she's a solid Christian. You know what I mean? It's kind of a descriptor that we use for other Christians, or, or we don't use for Christians that aren't solid. But sometimes someone will say, oh, well, yeah, well, what's up with that guy? Oh man, he's super solid. Or, well, what's going on with that girl? Man, she's, you know, her walk is a little, she's not real solid. And, 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 you know, there's something to be said for a solid faith, isn't there? A solid walk in Jesus Christ. And, and the Christian life is designed that it's to be moving ahead. We're to be growing at all times, growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, always going forward. And when we maintain that forward momentum, there comes a stability and a degree of solidness to our faith. But, What we're not supposed to be is wavering in our faith, unstable in our faith, up and down in our faith, our heels dug in, not going forward, or even sliding backwards in our faith. There's to be a continual, consistent growth as it pertains to our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we were talking about, spawned by just what's presented to us in the text, how do you stay solid in the faith? And the first thing that we realized was important was shown to us in verse 4. And that's where Paul says, I say this in order that nobody may delude you or beguile you with persuasive argument. 
And we talked last week about the fact that Jesus said the last days would be characterized by deception. And how much to our horror, really, the New Testament says that deception would come up from within the church in the last days. We talked about that. And that the primary way to guard ourselves from deception, from beguilement, from persuasive arguments that would lead us away from the simplicity of faith in Jesus Christ is to know very well the Word of God. Is to know very well the Word of God. Because deception will be contrary to the Word of God. It may involve a little bit of truth or or a certain degree of truth, but in the final analysis, it won't be completely consistent with the totality of Scripture. And so it was heavy upon our hearts last week that we need to be a people who handles accurately the word of truth, that we need to be in our Bibles individually, each one of us, week in and week out, that we might be protected from deception, winds of doctrine, Doctrines of demons, deceit, as the New Testament says. Now, point number two about how to be solid in our faith was that we ought to have good discipline. We see that in verse 5 where Paul says, uh, I rejoice to see your good discipline. The, the idea there in the Greek language is an ordered array, and it was used sometimes in ancient cultures to speak of, of a military force. And how you know a military force? They're in ordered array. And, you know, there's different fronts, and, and it's real important that there not be a break or a breach in that ordered array, lest the enemy have an opportunity to come in. And as a church body, as members one of another, as a community of faith who are connected in Christ, it's important that we have an ordered array, that each one of us is, is aware that we are needed in the body of Christ, that we're important to the body of Christ, that it's very necessary that we be engaged with the rest of the body of Christ. And then that ordered array, that good discipline, comes down to then to our individual responsibility. Because put together, all doing our part, we're an ordered array. But you know, if one bites the dust or lets down his guard or just messes up, then there's a a breach or a break in that discipline, in that line. It's an opportunity for the enemy to come in and wreak havoc. And that's what he wants to do with the church of Jesus Christ. The enemy wants to come in and, and just flat out wreak havoc. And so it's important that we maintain our individual discipline with regard to spiritual things, our relationship with Christ. As we read last week in 1 Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That when we function together as a body, there's no breaks, no breaches. And last week we spent a lot of time talking about the fact that your sin affects me and my sin affects you because we're members of the same body of Christ. And we um, called to mind the story of Achan in Joshua 7. Remember where he had the forbidden things hidden under the earth in his, in his tent and, and how that brought about a defeat for Israel. And so we want to have individual good discipline that then yields a corporate discipline that then acts as a barrier to the work of the enemy who wants to come in and confuse, confound, and wreak havoc in the body of Christ. The third point we talked about as to how to be solid in your faith was to have stability of faith. Stability of faith. Remember that we said that in the Christian life, it's a truth that unless you're moving forward, you're really sliding backwards. There's no standing still in the Christian life because, you know, the things of the world and the work of the flesh and the schemes of the enemy are always seeking to pull you away from Christ. And unless you're actively moving toward him, unless you've got momentum in your faith, you know, you're just going to slide backwards. There's no way to stand still. It's like the picture of jumping in a quickly moving river. Unless you're going to really boogie upstream, you're going to go downstream. 
And the analogy that we used was from my dirt biking experience. And I told you there that when you're in, you know, soft, sandy dirt or there's obstacles or bumps or ruts, so on and so forth, that it's to your benefit to be on the throttle. It's to your benefit to be on the gas. And, and when you're going real slow, you know, you're feeling every bump and, and you get loose and you get sideways in the loose dirt and in the obstacles. But man, when you're on the gas, there comes a stability. You know what I mean? And it's the same in a boat and it's the same in other things. We talked about that. And so in your Christian life, when you're on the gas, when you're on the throttle, when you're purposely and purposefully moving forward toward Christ, there comes a stability. You know, the little loose areas and the little bumps and the little obstacles and the winds of doctrine don't affect you so much because you got the throttle twisted, you're moving toward Christ, and and there you go. And in that momentum comes a stability, and then you prove to be solid in the faith. Now, point four, as we pick it up this week, is given to us in verse 6. In verse 6, it says, As you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So walk in him. We have that verb there, walk, and it's in the present tense. And what that means is it simply stresses our daily walk with Jesus Christ. The reality that our walk is to be a daily thing, you know? A relationship with Jesus Christ is not a one-time commitment. It's not a one-time hookup. It's not just raising your hand or going forward in an altar call or signing your name to a piece of paper. But as we received him at a definite point in time, then there's to be a continual walk with him, the present tense, daily spiritual development. And so walk with him could also be translated, lead your life. So think about it this way. Verse 6 again. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so lead your life. In the same way that you receive Jesus as Lord, lead your life or walk in him in that way. Now, what happened when you received him? Repentance happened, didn't it? Repentance happened. I mean, you you can't receive him unless you repent of your sins. And, And so to receive Christ Jesus, there came a moment in your life where you repented of your sins where your will yielded to his, where you said, Lord, I've been wrong. I've sinned. I've blown it. I have done wrong things. I'm a sinner. But I understand now that you're the Savior. Forgive me of my sins. You see, it required repentance, like Peter told the nation of Israel in Acts 3.19. Repent, therefore. The times of refreshing may come from being in the presence of the Lord. And so just as that initial conversion experience was characterized on your part by repentance, your Christian walk, your daily walk, should be to a certain degree, as needed, characterized by repentance. Repentance is not just a one-time thing. We're forgiven of all of our sins once and for all. Positionally, we're placed in the kingdom of God and nothing could change that. But practically now... We have, excuse me, 1 John 1, 9 that says, If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Now, determined by the context, 1 John 1, 9 is not a salvific passage. That's to say it doesn't have to do with salvation. It has to do with the Christian life. You're going to sin in your Christian life, aren't you? Is there anybody here that got saved and you never sinned again? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Don't be shy. Come on. We want to see you. We want to see, okay, nobody. We, we all get saved, 
And positionally, we're washed white as snow. We become brand new creations. Behold, if any man or woman is in Christ Jesus, they are a brand new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become brand new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. But we still sin. And what sin does is it, is it brings a hindrance in the, in the communion with the Lord. You know what I mean? It just breaks off that intimacy. It removes us from that place of blessing because we're not walking in his path anymore when we sin. By definition, we've moved off the mark or we've transgressed. We've crossed the line that we shouldn't cross. And so there is in my life and your life a daily need for repentance. Not for salvation, for intimacy, for blessing, to be in the will of the Lord. Repentance means to do an about face. So if you've sinned, you're going off in the wrong direction. If you transgress, you've gone in the opposite direction. So, so you've got to repent. You've got to do an about face and, and come back to the Lord. And so don't be shy in your Christian walk about repentance. It means to change your mind. And you know, it's interesting. Oftentimes I hear Christians pray. They could be going in a wrong direction. And, you know, I minister to young people a lot. So I deal with boy-girl relationships a lot. And all the time, you know, I'll, I'll hear a guy or a girl and, and they're in a relationship and everybody but them knows it's not the right one for them. You know what I'm talking about? Everybody. And, and they pray, well, I just, I, I really, really like this person. And so they pray, Lord, change my heart. Make me not like this person and then I'll do the right thing. But you, you see, that's wrong. That's wrong. You need to change your mind. You need to repent. Don't ask God to to change your heart about it. You see, God has designed men and women so that they're attracted to one another. Deal with it. But God has given you wisdom so that you do not move forward in that attraction unless it's the right time with the right person. God is not going to... It's like you're fasting. You're fasting and you're hungry and so you say, God, remove my hunger. Well, it just kind of defeats the purpose, doesn't it? Doesn't it? You know, God does not remove those natural inclinations that he put in you as a human. He just redeems them. And they're redeemed when you bring them into submission before the Lord. And so there's got to be a degree of, of continual, not for salvation, for walking with the Lord, repentance in your life. Where when you veer off track, oh, I repent, Lord. When you transgress, oh, Lord, I'm coming back. And when, when your will comes in, into contest with the will of God, brother, you've got to lose. When your will is in competition with the will of God, sister, you've got to be the one that surrenders. It's like a marriage. You know, in a marriage, if two people are always butt and head, there's, there's not going to be any harmony. How can two walk together unless they agree, the book of Ecclesiastes says. There's just no harmony when you're doing this. And and just as an aside, guess who in the marriage context, according to Scripture, is to surrender his will first? I gave you a hint there by saying his. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church, having given himself up for her. He's to be the first to die in the marriage relationship. But in our relationship with Jesus Christ, if your will is contrary to his, you've got to surrender that will. You understand that concept? And we do that through repentance. So not only are we to walk according to that as we received him, but also the other thing that happened when you received the Lord was grace. Grace happened, amen? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, We've been saved by grace through faith, and that not of works so no man could boast. We have been saved by grace 
through faith and not of works. Now, grace is undeserved favor. It's just blessings that you don't deserve. And I got news for you. You did not deserve to be saved. God did not owe you anything. You know what I mean? When he forgave you your sins, it was an act of grace. It was an act of kindness. It was beyond mercy. It it, it was grace. And so as you receive the Lord in grace, walk in grace. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says that our standing before the Lord is in grace. That means undeserved favor. That means that as you stand before the Lord in your daily life, he has for you and toward you undeserved favor, undeserved kindness. And and it's available to you every day because of your position in Jesus Christ. When you become saved, when you repent of your sins and ask the Lord to save you, you're delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son. And so now you're identified with Christ Jesus. And when the Father looks at you, he only sees you through the perfect life and the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And remember on multiple occasions in the Gospels, God the Father said concerning God the Son, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And you now, by salvation and baptism, are identified with Christ Jesus, with his death and his resurrection. And so when the Father goes to deal with you, he deals with you according to grace. That is the only way that he deals with you, theologically speaking. Our standing before him is one of grace. And so you need to walk according to grace. You know what that means? That means you don't beat yourself up and you don't let Satan beat you up. Because they both love to do it, don't they? You don't beat yourself up. You don't let Satan beat you up. There's no such thing as a bad Christian. No such thing as a good Christian. There's solid Christians. But there's not good and bad. We're all Christians. We're all sinners saved by grace. And so we got to get over this concept of, well, I, I performed well today. Or I performed badly today. Or gosh, I've been doing good the last month or I've done badly this month. God doesn't deal in that sort of phraseology, you understand. You're saved by grace and not of works. Your standing is in grace. You're in Christ Jesus. Your salvation was not taken according to performance, and it is not to be lived out according to performance. We're to walk according to grace. And in God's grace, he provides us power. He provides us resource. He gives us wisdom. He pours blessings into our life. He allows us to draw near to him and he draws near to us. The Christian life is to be continued on in grace. And you just really got to be careful about work sneaking in. About work sneaking in. Even as we progress in this message, we're going to talk about the fact that the Christian life, life, the Christian life is evidenced by fruit. There ought to be fruit in your life. But as we get to that part of the message, I I don't want you to confuse works and fruit. There ought to be fruit in your life, but fruit is the evidence of faith and grace. It's the outflow of walking in grace. Grace and faith do not come from works. Works flow out of grace and faith. And there's a tremendous difference between the two. And, and, you know, the the enemy would love to make that complicated for you. But the Word of God would love to make it simple for you today. You are saved by grace through faith and not of works. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus 
for good works which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. You're saved by grace. Your standing is in grace. But in God's grace, he prepared good works for you. He loves you so much he wants to use you. He wants to allow you to labor in his kingdom. He wants to employ you in his work. And he goes ahead in grace and prepares the good works beforehand. And then he, by grace, he gives you the power to do those works. And then by grace, he leads you to the place where you do walk in them. It's all by grace. It's all from the Lord. And I want you to notice that what it says there is the Lord. Again, reading verse 6. As therefore you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord. Christ Jesus, the Lord. The idea of that phrase, the Lord, is he's master. He's owner. And he's ruler. Now, we deal with God as a father, of course. But he's also our master. And it's like any other relationship. There, there's various facets to all sorts of relationships. You know what I mean? My dad, he's my father. Duh, obviously, my dad is my father. But he's also my friend. And ever increasingly so, our friendship is blossoming. And we're becoming really good friends as I age and I mature, and that's basically why. You know, we're just... More and more all the time, we're becoming great friends. But you see, that doesn't negate the fact that he's my father. It doesn't change the fact that he's my father. It doesn't erase that, and we don't leave that behind. He remains forever my father, but there is this other dynamic of relationship where he is also my friend. And so we're related different ways at different times, and the two interact, and they cross, and they weave themselves together. And that's the complexity of a human relationship. And so with the Lord. He's our Father, and there's a certain way that we deal with Him according to that, and He deals with us. He has compassion on those who are His children, Psalm 103 says. But at the same time, He's our Master. The two don't negate one another. They're woven together in our Christian walk. And it's important that we recognize him as Lord. We received him as Lord, and we've got to walk as Lord. Billy Graham says concerning this in the Annals of America, he says, No man can be said to be truly converted to Christ who has not bent his will to Christ. He may give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ and may have had emotional religious experiences. However, he is not truly converted until he has surrendered his will to Christ as Lord, Savior, and Master. Charles Spurgeon has a quote about this. He says, It is interesting to notice that the apostles preach the lordship of Christ. The word Savior occurs only twice in the book of Acts. On the other hand, it is amazing to notice the title Lord is mentioned 92 times. Lord Jesus 13 times, and the Lord Jesus Christ 6 times in the same book. The gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The point is, before you were born again, your will was in conflict. It was in contest with the will of God. There had to come a surrendering of your will where you said, I'm a sinner. I'm wrong. I surrender. I confess. I repent. And so again, as we spoke of a few moments ago, we need to continue on in the Christian life with Jesus being our Lord. You can't rely upon just fire insurance. You know, if that's kind of your mindset, I don't know that you were ever born again. If your mindset is, well, I raised my hand one time and I prayed the prayer and now I'm going to live my life. 
I don't think you were born again. Because to be born again means that you were given a new nature. And this nature has been made alive to God. This nature hungers after God. This nature responds to God. This nature is led by God. Romans 8, 14. Those who are the sons of God are being led by the Spirit of God. And so if there is within you a total lack of desire for the Lord, the things of the Lord, wanting to know Him better, wanting to follow after Him, and all you could point to back in your life is sometime where you raised your hand or prayed a prayer, I don't know that you were ever born again. Because you haven't received a new nature which is alive to God, which loves the Lord and wants to submit to the Lord. Now, we're still kids, so at times we rebel. But generally, as a Christian, your life should be characterized by a sincere desire to obey Christ Jesus. As you have received him as Lord, walk in him as Lord. Be aware of self wanting to assert itself in the midst of your spirituality. Because at the core of the Christian life, Jesus Christ is on the throne. And you know who hates that, don't you? The flesh. The flesh hates that. The devil hates it too. But man, the flesh, it just loves to get its way. It loves to be on the throne. And so because we're, you know, a living sacrifice, we often worm our way off the altar and try to get back up on the throne. Keep yourself on the place of the altar in subjection to, surrendered to the will of the Lord. When your will and his come in contest, when they come head to head, you've got to be the first to surrender. You've got to lay that down and let the Lord be Lord. Either either Jesus is Lord of your whole life or he isn't Lord at all. Point five as to how to be solid in your faith is given to us in verse seven when it says, having been firmly rooted having been firmly rooted. It's a perfect participle, which means this. I didn't know what it meant either. It means this. It means having been rooted with the present result that you are now firmly anchored. Okay, the present participle of being rooted means that it happened at a definite time. It took place. You are rooted in Christ Jesus. But it, it has a, an abiding action. It has the result that we are now, at this moment, firmly anchored in Christ Jesus. takes place at conversion. You're delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son. You become rooted in, identified with Him. But now we're to grow in that rooting. If we're going to be solid in the faith, those roots that we have in Him need to go ever deeper, ever further down, and, and they need to spread further out, you understand. If you're going to bear fruit, then the tree that is your life, so to speak, to use a picture, you know, it's got to grow up and it's got to grow out. And generally speaking, with regards to trees and agriculture, the spread of the leaves that are visible and the branches that are visible are usually about equal to the spread of the roots that are invisible. And so the more rooted you become in Christ Jesus, that continual process, the more rooted you become in Him, the more the visible fruit of your life expands and flows and becomes full. Now one of the surest ways I know to stay rooted in Jesus Christ is to let the Word of Christ take root in us. Go to Matthew 13 as we see Jesus speak about it. Matthew 13.
The Bible seems to be fond of agricultural illustrations. Jesus used several of them. Being firmly rooted is an agricultural term. And here Jesus is going to talk about some agricultural type stuff. Matthew 13, starting in verse 1. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and great multitudes gathered to him, so that he got into the boat and sat down, and the whole multitude was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. And others fell upon the rocky places where they didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. Verse 6, But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now you say, what does that mean? Now the Lord explained it to us, starting in verse 18. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he's got no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is a man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on good soil, this is a man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Now I need to ask you, what's the soil of your heart like? Because you're all at this moment receiving the seed that is the word. And most of you have received the word in weeks prior. And, and many of you received the word all week long as you read the Bible for yourself. And what is the soil of your heart like? Is it like the soil beside the road where, you know, it's just resistant to the word coming in? You resist it in that you just never pick it up during the week? Therefore, by definition, you're resistant to it. Maybe a sign that There's hardness in your heart. You know how hardness in your heart develops? Hardness in your heart develops when you say no to the Lord. And every time you say no to the Lord, it gets harder. Your heart does. And so then repentance gets harder because there's a greater resistance to the word. And and so when you hear the word of preach, is is there hardness of your heart where you're immediately hearing those things and, and you're, no, not me. I don't need to do that. Doesn't apply to me. I don't get it. Brother, sister, you got a hard heart. You need to allow the Holy Spirit to break up that fallow ground, to break up that hardness of heart. Perhaps it's rocky, the soil. And and you receive the word, you know, you you come to church and you hear a sermon or or you read a little bit in a few minutes before you go out the door and you say, yeah, well, that was awesome. That, that, That was great. But there's no firm root in it. You go out and you live a different way. You come in here and, oh, I love hearing the word. and Oh, it's awesome. But then you go out and you live a different way and the sun comes, the reality of life, and it scorches it. There's no firm root. You develop some good soil in your heart. Or maybe, you know, 
there's the thorns that come and, and choke out the word. Jesus said there that the thorns are, um, you know, the concerns of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And you're just so caught up in the things of the world and in your own passions, your own possessions, your desire for position, that you hear the word, the clear explanation thereof, you read it for yourself, you see the precepts, and you just walk away from it. Because the desire for your own things and your concern with everything other than Jesus Christ comes and chokes out the word. Well, my prayer for you is that there'd be soft, good soil in your heart. You know, the Carpinteria Valley, I don't know if you know this, has some of the best soil on the face of the earth. Some of the best soil on the face of the earth. And I was planting olive trees in my backyard this week, and olive trees are my favorite tree in the world. Reminds me of Israel. And I planted a couple of olive trees back in, in the just soft dirt. I love just getting in and, and just digging around with my fingers, and it's just easy. You could dig in, and you get that dirt all underneath your feet. It's still there. You get it underneath your fingernails and, and everything like that, and it's awesome. And you know what? The Holy Spirit ought to have that sort of liberality in your heart. There ought to be this sense of, yeah, my heart is soft, and the Holy Spirit is able to come and just dig around in it. And when I open up the Word, the Holy Spirit's just kind of going like this into my heart. And when I hear the Word preached, I am not resisting. Uh, I'm not worried and bothered by the things of the world, but I, my, my heart is just soft and open before the Lord, saying, Lord, it is my sincere desire to walk with you as Lord, as I received you as Lord. And so come stir up the soil of my heart. Come plant some things there. Come pull out some weeds that ought not to be there. Maybe move some rocks as you find them, Lord, but, but just till up my heart and just work into it that mulch that fertilizer, that thing which will yield fruitfulness in my heart, the Word of God, Lord, work it into my heart. John 15 speaks about this. Go to John 15 if you would. Jesus speaking in John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. He, he prunes it, or it could also be translated, he cleanses it. Either way, there's a vine, and it's Christ Jesus. You can consider it like a trunk of a tree. And there's branches. And the Christian is to be the branch that, that, is, that is firmly connected to the vine or, or to the trunk. And Jesus is saying here that any branch that doesn't bear fruit, it gets taken away. Where does it go? Look in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. I don't know exactly what that means, but it doesn't sound good. <laughs> On the other hand, the branch that bears fruit, it says that the, the vine dresser, the father, he prunes it. He cares for it. He cleanses it, it could be translated. The other day I was planting those um, olive trees and, and there were some vines that had been growing there over this fence from our neighbor's house and stuff. And as I was moving dirt around, you know, some of the vines that were close to the ground, they got all covered up in dirt. 
And later on, as I was finishing up wanting to care for that vine, I I pulled those ones that were buried out of the dirt, and I, I pulled them up and into the sunlight and into the air, and I dusted them off there. You know, and some parts that were going in the wrong direction where I didn't want them to go, I, as a vine dresser, with my wisdom, I cut them there. I pruned them there. But I cleaned off that vine. I brought it into the sun and into the air. And then where it shouldn't be, I cut it, and so the Lord will do with you. You know, he washes you and he cleanses you by the cross and by the word. And then he prunes you. When you start heading in a direction you, don't, you shouldn't go, the Lord is so merciful to cut it off, to deal with it. He goes on in verse 3. You're already clean because of the word which I spoke to you. Verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. A promise there. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If we abide in the Lord, the promise of Scripture is we're going to bear a whole bunch of fruit. Now, what does it mean to abide? The idea there is simply to depend on. The branch depends on the vine, doesn't it? And without the vine, the branch ain't doing nothing. The branch depends on the vine for nutrients, for water, for support. So to abide in Christ means to depend on Jesus Christ. That's how we're to walk on Him. You depended on Him for salvation. So depend on him for your daily walk. It means to be in communion with him. The vine is, is, or the branch is connected. It's connected to the vine. It means to be in communion. And it means to obey. To abide means to obey. And the promise is when we are connected with Christ, when we're dependent upon him, when we're in communion, when we're being obedient, we will bear much fruit. And that fruit then is not works in the sense of the law, or earning us any merit. That fruit is fruit. Now, fruit is the natural byproduct of just a few things being in place. Fruit happens when there's good soil, when there's good watering, and when there's good sunlight. Now, you are to watch over the soil of your heart, and we're to watch over one another's hearts, according to Hebrews chapter 3. We're to watch over our own and our other hearts to see that there's good soil. The Word and the Holy Spirit water that. And when you get yourself in the sunlight, the S-O-N, when you get connected to the vine, the natural outflow of that is fruit. The branch doesn't do anything but display the fruit. The vine did the work. The vine grew up, the vine drew forth the water and the nutrients, and the vine supports the branch. And the branch then just displays that fruit, which really came from the vine. You keep yourself connected with Jesus Christ, you will display much fruit, but it really came from Him. It's by grace. It's according to His work and His power and His supply. But we've got to stay connected to Him. And and the best way to do that is made very clear for us in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. 
By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Notice what he said. If my word abides in you. And so we've been talking about being firmly rooted. The best way that I know to stay rooted and to grow in depth of root in Jesus Christ is to let the word be rooted in your heart. How can a young man keep his way pure, the psalmist asked in Psalm 119? By hiding the word of God in his heart, by every word of God. You've got to hide the word of God in your heart. Colossians tells us that the word of Christ should dwell richly in our minds. That we should feast upon the word. The word should be for us in our private lives, a banqueting table where we come and and we receive sustenance, nourishment. But I'll tell you what, if the word doesn't take root in you, you will be very shallow in your rooting in Jesus Christ. Remember, Christians grow word by word. Peter said in one of his epistles, long for the pure pure milk of the word and, and thereby grow according to it. We, we grow according to the word of God as we're nourished on it. If you're not in it, you're not going to grow. And you know what you become then? You become, you know what you become? Tumbleweed. Tumbleweed. I went dirt biking not too long ago. Out in the desert, and I saw a whole bunch of tumbleweeds. You know, tumbleweeds are curious. They're just kind of blowing around in the wind. No purpose. No anchor. Just blowing in the wind. Why is that? Well, it's an agricultural gig. They have a singular root structure structure that's very shallow. And so when it gets too hot, that root is easily scorched. It begins to dry up, and so the plant dries up. And when the wind comes, it just blows away. Now I'm telling you, as the Bible has told you, that in these last days, there will be winds of doctrine that seek to blow into the church and lead people astray. There will be difficult times that come. And when the sun comes to scorch and the wind comes to blow, if you are not firmly, deeply rooted in Jesus Christ, you will be uprooted and blown in the wind, no direction, blown off course by winds of doctrine and doctrines of demons. I'm warning you, church, according to the New Testament, to let the word be deeply rooted in you that then your roots in Christ might spread out and then the fruit of that would be evident. Point number six, if you go back to Colossians. And these last two go very quickly, I promise. Sort of. Point number six, as you go back to Colossians. Once again in verse seven, it says, Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him. So there's not only the idea that we're to be rooted. I love the picture that we get here. We're to be rooted. There's the foundation, which is Christ Jesus, and then we're to be built up. You see the structure taking place? We're to be rooted. There's the foundation of Christ, and then we're to be built up. And so it says here that we're to be built up, and it's a present participle again. It speaks of a continuous action, constantly being built up. And in the Christian life, you need to see to it that you are always being built up, always growing in your faith, and that you are always building someone else up. That's the responsibility of the Christian life. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, These things that you have heard from me entrust to faithful men who will entrust them to others. 
in the Christian life, you need to see to it that you are being built up and building others up. Now, Ephesians 4 speaks about it just a couple pages back. We'll be right back to Colossians, but go to Ephesians 4 if you would. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. Ephesians 4.11 says, And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Now, here's their role in the church. Verse 12, For the equipping of the saints, to equip the Christians. For, what for? For the work of service. The Christians might be able to serve the Lord. Why? To the building up of the body of Christ. Now, you're to see to it that you're in a place of receiving teaching and receiving the word for yourself so that you're being built up, so that you're able to serve the Lord, to serve one another, and then we all together are being built up. Until what takes place? Until verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We're to continue to be built up until there is clear and evident maturity. Until there's unity of faith. What's the result of that going to be? Verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. You see that? Being built up and building others ensures that when the waves come, the house doesn't crumble. When the wind blows, the building doesn't fall. Verse 15 says, But speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him, who is the head even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You are to be being built up and you are to be building up others through the gifts that the Lord has given you. And it's a process and it's a journey to discover what your gifts are and exactly what your role is in the body of Christ. And it's okay if you're a new Christian and and you don't really understand those things right now. That's okay. That's, That's part of the journey is you learn spiritual gifts that God has given you and how you fit into the body and and what you have to offer and how you can serve other people and and where the Lord has given you inclinations and provision for that. That's okay. If you're a new Christian, you haven't discovered that. If you've been a Christian for any time and you don't know that, shame on you. You play a role in the body. And if you're not playing your role, then the growth process is stunted in the body. And my growth and your growth is hindered because somebody in the body has refused to play their role. They're not exercising their gifts in whatever context may be provided. They're not being built up and building up others. And and, and there's a stunting that happens to the body. In church, we don't want that. Don't, Don't you want to grow in Christ Jesus? It's just the worst thing to be stagnant. And, and to, to keep from becoming stagnant, you need an inflow and an outflow. An inflow and an outflow. When you go to Israel with us, and I'm sure that all of you will go sometime. When you go to Israel with us, we will start the tour up near the Sea of Galilee. And you'll see that it is very alive, that it is beautiful, it is wonderful, it's glorious. There's all sorts of fish in it, and it's vibrant, it's great. That is because the Jordan River flows into it, and then the Jordan River flows out of it. There's an inflow and there's an outflow. And so it stays alive. 
Later in the tour, we'll drive down south to the Negev, the southern region, the desert there, and we will see the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea is dead. Nothing lives in it. It's impossible for anything to live in it. Why is it dead? Because the Jordan River flows into it, but being the lowest spot on the face of the earth, it's physically impossible for it to flow out of it, and so it just stagnates. It dies because there's no outflow. Fresh water is always flowing in, but even when it flows in, it only ends up in death. And if you are the kind of Christian that only takes and takes and takes and you sit in the pew week after week after week and you hear the teaching of the Word of God and you listen to the radio and you hear the Word and the resources of the books and you take in and you're never pouring out, I'm telling you, you're the Dead Sea. We could keep on pouring in until Christ comes. And all you will do is increase in size but be utterly void of fruit in life. There must be an outflow. Yes, be built up, but then seek to build up others. That is a Christian life. And anything different than that is not the right Christian life. Point number seven, as you flip your finger back to Colossians, says that we're to be established. Established. Again, a present participle emphasizing continuous action. We are to be established in Our faith, it says. When it says faith there, it refers to the body of doctrinal truth. You are to be established in the truth of the Word of God. And there we see it once again. We we heard it last week in in part one. We've heard it today about abiding in Christ by His Word abiding in us. And here we hear it again. That to be established in the faith, it has to do with laying hold of doctrinal truth. And I'm just going to tell you, that you could hear as many sermons as you want to, but until you pick up the Bible for yourself, you'll never grow in the way that God intends. You'll never become established in your faith. You'll be a spoon-fed Christian. You'll be a spoon-fed Christian. You'll be like my little Daisy. You know, she's two years old, just turned two on Friday. And you know, she's at the place where she really can eat on her own, but she loves Papa to feed her. And so there she is eating on her own. Then she sees me and goes, Daddy, foon, foon. That's how she says spoon. Foon, foon. And what she means is, pick up the spoon, Daddy. Put some food in it and put it to my mouth for me. Now I do it because I'm just Twitter-pated with this chick. I'm just nuts about her. She's 30 years old. She asked me to do it. I'll do it for her. But in reality, she's got to be weaned off that, doesn't she? She has got to learn to feed herself on the nutrition place before her or she'll never grow rightly. Christian, you've got to learn to feed yourself on the word of God. You must learn to feast upon and nourish yourself on the word of God or you will never grow as the Lord intended. And these times are just too important. It's just too vital. The Lord is too near for you to be stunted in growth, playing games in your Christianity. And the last point, is the last phrase where he simply says there, and overflowing with gratitude. The last point of how to be solid in your faith is just overflow with gratitude. Overflow, doesn't it bring to mind a a river going over its banks and and just the richness that that speaks of? Let your life overflow with gratitude. Beware of grumbling and complaining, which is a sin against God. Beware of the Eve complex where Satan seeks to get your eyes off of all the blessings you have and to get your eyes on the one thing that you don't have. Be very aware of that. 
When you feel yourself getting off track, just start to praise the Lord. It's very biblical. Just start to let your mind dwell on that which is true and lovely and excellent and worthy of praise and of good repute as spoken of in the book of uh, Philippians chapter 4. Just begin to give thanks to the Lord. It gets you on track because here's what it does. It says in the Psalms that the Lord is enthroned upon the praises of Yisrael. He's enthroned upon the praises of his people. When you overflow with gratitude and praise the Lord, it puts him on the throne of your life. And it gets you out of that spot. It gets him on the throne. It gets you off the throne. And thereby brings a stability, a solidity in your faith that is required to walk in these last days. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. I ask that you would stir up in each of our hearts an incredible hunger for you now. Just a hunger, Lord. Lord, we'd like to corporately, even in this moment, just confess of our tendencies to be wayward. want to confess that we're worried and bothered and distracted by so many things, but just one thing is necessary, you and being with you. Lord, would you now, as we begin to worship, just make our faith very simple. It's about you, the grace given us, your love and your provision and your blessings. Lord, make that abundantly clear. And Where we lack hunger, Lord, stir up a hunger in our hearts. Where there's a hardness of heart, break up that fallow ground for us. Where we've gone astray, prune us, Lord. Where we've gotten dirty, pull us out of the dirt and wash us. Where we've got a bad attitude, teach us to praise. We want to be solid in our faith. We want to be firmly rooted, built up, and established in you because, Jesus, you are all that matters. We confess that at times we don't live that way, but we, we want to say right now, Jesus, you are all that matters. We love you, Lord.